Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, The Lie, that is Lincoln. And the author is Stephen Miklozik. And Stephen joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Stephen. Good morning. Great to have you with us. The Lie, that is Lincoln. That is a, a very controversial title in and of itself. Let me read a few things you've written so we can understand a little bit more in general what your book is about, and then we'll get into the details with you This book, you say, will stir up controversy among historians, as I insist it was an unnecessary slaughter of so many brave American souls, of course, the Civil War. You also say that Abraham Lincoln easily moved the country to accept the need for military action to prevent the collapse of the democracy in America, And you argue that the South had a fundamental right to enunciate their own Declaration of Independence, and they and they should have been allowed to secede. So that, exactly. those exactly. are very strong strong opinions, Stephen. Let's start out here with a little bit about yourself and how this book all came about. Well, I'm a retired anesthesiologist, and about uh, 25 years ago, the family uh, and I were at Gettysburg, and uh, I was. I was amazed at the amount of people that were killed, something like 15,000 at Gettysburg. And I wondered, did this be done? And from then on, I, I just uh, did more reading and came to the conclusion that fundamentally, the South was not allowed the freedom of conscience to go their own way as the Declaration of Independence originally enunciated. According to your point of view, the South had all the right to do what they wanted to do, and the historians paint the South as the real wicked, wicked generation of that time in American history. Well, that, 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 that's a debatable point. According to me, what is more evil? Slavery, where a man exploits other men, or is it the killing of the slaveholder and the slave steller? Now, in reading the Bible, and I reference it in my book, there is no criticism of slavery in the uh, biblical times. Slavery had been around in Egyptian, Greek, and Roman civilizations, and were considered normal occurrence. And, 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 and uh, my references to the Bible supports the fact that there is no evil involved in owning slaves. They are, the Bible always says that the owners should treat the slaves humanely, and the slaves should obey and respect their owners. 
So slavery was not a sin, according to what you're seeing. Exactly. Well, what about in the Declaration of Independence where it talks about all men are created equal? Well, okay. Now, you're, you're doing a, a Lincoln a favor by, by referring to that all men are created equal. Now, slavery had been around in the United States for, what, 250 years? Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, it was evil. It had to be eradicated immediately. That, that is my criticism. We've had it, and we began, the South was accustomed to it. And Lincoln wanted to remove their, their, the farm machinery, which was the slaves. That would have been an enormous impact on the economy of the South. So there was a you you argue there was a much different approach of solving this problem and and didn't have to go to war and kill hundreds of thousands. Exactly. Now, now your the latest figure I have is seven hundred and twenty thousand Americans, North and South, were killed to satisfy Lincoln's idealistic urges. So he was the warmonger. Exactly. Okay. Uh, compromise was needed, but never never got to the table, never got to the negotiating table. Yes. Why do you think that happened? Well, <laughs> uh, Lincoln had a, a, a vision, and he pursued it no matter how many lives were lost in the process. Tell us about the major impact of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Well, uh, I, I present Harriet Beecher Stowe as a propagandist. By that, I mean she moved the whole nation to accept the fact that slavery was so evil that it needed to be eradicated. Uh, her book had modern themes in it that moved the nation emotionally to accept her viewpoint. Uh, even, even the scene where uh, Uncle Tom was killed is reminiscent of the death of Jesus upon the cross. And I think, didn't he say something to the same effect as Jesus did forgive them for they know not what they do? So she, she at that time was a favorite uh, author. Uh, many were reading that book because of the issue of the North and the South and, and obviously the slavery issue. She was a, a great opinion maker. Yes. Now tell us about the primacy of the Declaration of Independence in your point of view. Well, uh, I, I think I presented in my book where the Magna Carta was a seminal event a watershed, if you will, where uh, power was evolved or devolved from the tyrant toward the consent of the people. Now, this process came along, was it 1500, where it the Magna Carta, and it was coming along fairly nicely over the many years until Abraham Lincoln, where it hit a brick wall all of a sudden. There was no devolution of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
as, as Lincoln said in his Gettysburg Address. Now, what was, the, what was the South? If you're talking about of the people, by the people, for the people, they were people. But he denied that, that they had any rights. The only rights they had was to obey Lincoln. And he was going to kill every Southerner if he had to, to get his uh, viewpoint across. Yeah, as you point out, uh, in the Declaration of, of Independence, of course, it says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for yes. one people to the, to dissolve the political exactly. bands which have connected them with another. And then exactly. you use the example of Texas. Yes. Well, they, 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 when they declared the independence from Mexico, they used virtually identical language to the original Declaration of Independence. So why could not the South use the same language to declare their independence or secede from the Union in the same manner? So the battle cry, as you say, uh, yes. this clever battle cry, the nation must be preserved, yes. uh, was a tactic by Lincoln to just advance his political causes. Exactly. He said if... If we do not preserve union, the whole concept of democracy would disintegrate and the country would go into chaos. Well, I beg to differ because his crystal ball was so better than mine. And do you uh, talk about Rousseau and Locke and Hobbes in your book? Yes. Uh, that's, uh, there, there are others who, who contributed the same type of philosophy. But my major reading was uh, John Locke. Who, who espoused the concept that people have the inherent right to uh, follow their consciences. Now, you also compare yourself to George Orwell. Of course, we know George Orwell's fame as the author of uh, Animal Farm, 1984. Uh, why do you do that? Well, uh, I, I think probably because of the impact of, of, of propaganda, if you will, to move people's thinking. And Orwell certainly uh, was controversial. Uh, he was a person that really stretched our thinking. Yes. So that what you feel you need to do is stretch everyone's thinking and uh, see history as it really should be seen. Well... Uh, I, I was amazed that of all the publications I've read, there seemed to be no question that uh, Lincoln's policy was the best policy. Well, I beg to differ. If the South had been allowed to secede, we would have had we would have had the Confederate States of America and the Northern United States of America, and because of their similar ethnic. Uh, uh, background, mostly Anglo-Saxon, both parts of the country would have got, got along fairly well. Thank you very much. Now, we're getting along quite well with Canada, and they were of similar stock with a, a flavor of French. Do you think that eventually the North and the South uh, would have... Uh united and become the United States of America no, if allowed no, to... No? No. Okay. I think they would have gone their own separate ways because 
their backgrounds were dissimilar. The North was aggressive and industrial. The South was primary agricultural with aristocratic pretension. And I don't see them uh, reuniting. Well, it's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, if, if the South had been allowed to secede, uh, what would history look like and what would we look like today? That's, uh, you, you, you feel that we would be as strong and uh, we would, the uh, two nations, instead of one nation, like our northern neighbor, which we uh, get along with really well, Canada, that would have been a great strength and we wouldn't have killed so many. And, and, and the, because of the loss of 720,000 Americans, I'm sure our population would be closer to 500 million. What about the slavery issue? What would have come about if the Civil War hadn't have happened? Well, I, I think it's a, lot of, a lot of people feel that eventually, but they, they don't say how soon slavery would have died as an economic anomaly. Uh, they, they wouldn't have gotten the financial benefit from owning slaves and selling slaves and exploiting slaves. And, and the machinery that came along would have replaced, replaced manual labor. So it would have just dissolved on its own, just through its own demise and we wouldn't have slaughtered 720,000 good men. Yes, I, I think that's, from my reading, that's the general feeling uh, of what might have happened. We've been listening to Stephen Miklosik. He is the author of his book, The Lie That Is Lincoln. Stephen, tell us how to get your book. <laughs> uh, the... Um Ex Libris has a, a website for that that you can order through them. Uh, they tell me it'll be available in bookstores and stuff like that, and I think Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but I, I'm not sure of those details. Right. Well, anyone can order it. I'm sure online or walk into a bookstore and and ask for it, and they can order it. Uh, well, Stephen, a fascinating uh, hypothesis and yes, certainly uh, something to think about, and you have stretched our thinking today, so thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live. Every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management, the holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness, how emotions are directly related to physical illness, and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live. 
every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature, and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Healing Place, and the author is Joyce Shaughnessy. And Joyce joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Joyce. Hello. A Healing Place is a, a journey that you take us on with Amos and Molly Miller and their three daughters who managed to live through the challenges of the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, and World War II by the love of their family and faith in God. Uh, you say, then they face the incredible adversities of World War II, but they still stay strong in the same beliefs. So this book has a really sounds to be a tribute to the family and the strength of the family. Yes, very much so. Well, tell us about yourself, Joyce, and why you decided to write the book, A Healing Place. I, um, I lived in Texas as a little girl from ages 1 to 10, and I listened to people talk about, uh, my parents and other people talk about uh, the depression and what the effect that it had on them. And I, my mother and father were very religious, and I actually based uh, Molly's character on the memories that I have of my mother. She died when I was 14, but I still remember what a loving person she was, uh, how much she always instilled the faith in God in all of us, and um, that she always put us first, and my father did too. And I saw one day, I was writing, and I about the depression and I was going to have my family instead of going out to California go down to Texan and uh, find work from their Oklahoma farm and on the History Channel which I watch all the time I saw um, a show about the Dust Bowl in particular in Oklahoma and I was just horrified at what these people went through. I had no idea how severe it was. And when I saw it, I went in and tore my book, the pages I had printed out and started all over because I wanted to show this family in real adversity because there really were people who experienced it. And it was so horrifying for them. And when they finally were evicted, 
God in their used pickup truck to drive down toward the oil fields. About all they had in their truck was a little bit of food and their family. But they looked at each other, and Molly and Amos did, and said, we have what's most important. We have our family with us. Because there were so many families at that time who lost members to the Dust Bowl. Uh, I write, the beginning of my book is about uh, what was called Black Sunday. And that was a day, or three days, where... 650 million tons of dirt were thrust upon, were just dropped out of thin air onto the Dust Bowl, which included Oklahoma, Nebraska, and it actually at that time covered all the way up into Maine and all through that seaboard. And in Oklahoma, it was black for three days. All they could see in the air was dust. All they could taste was dust. And you say the wind was howling. It was like roaring. It was like a tornado, but it was a dust cloud. Mm. And um, Amos sees it coming and runs in, and they get under quilts, and Molly tears up. Of course, they've been in the Depression for a long time, don't have anything, hardly. She tears up the only slip she has that she happens to be wearing and puts cloths around her uh, family's mouths and nose because livestock were uh, choked by it. Children who happened to be playing out in the yard disappeared. Grown people disappeared. It just took them up in the air to, you know, another state, and they never found them. And it was just horrifying. And then the the insect infestation happened. They would be sitting there eating a a meal, and they could see the insects running underneath the wallpaper eating the glue because that was the only thing they could find to eat. It was just terrible. (laughs) And they were actually fortunate to be evicted because they were just sitting there without food or crops. All they had was one chicken and one cow. And the chicken died during the dust storm. So Molly saved the cow, actually got the dirt out of its mouth and its nose so it could breathe. And uh, they they started on their way to, to find a better place to live. And they found it in Texas. And I didn't realize until I started doing more research that it had been uh, built by a philanthropist who donated his share of the money of that oil well, which funded half of it funded the University of Texas, and half of it went to he and his partner, and he uh, to him and his partner, and he used his money to import thousands of rose bushes and oak trees and elm trees. and built, He built a clinic and, and a church and little white houses with indoor plumbing, and this was in the 1930s, so that was unusual to begin with. And they really were lucky to find homes there and the work. 
where they can have dignity in their lives. They stop on their way in, in Borger, and it was one of the most infamous bad oil camps that you could think of with prostitutes and liquor and the workers had to live in tents in mud and oil goop and it was just horrible. They lived, they worked in danger, they worked at night out on the oil fields and they couldn't even see and so when they got to Texas, they appreciated it even more and then their son Jed goes in is captured in World War II, or is caught in World War II, on the island of the Philippines in Manila. And he ends up fighting in the Battle of Bataan and walking the Death March. And he ends up in a POW camp, which I, I weave of fictional, fictional characters around real facts. I love researching real facts and using fictional characters who are around real characters and actual events in history. And I wrote his first in a book, uh, a series of books. The next book is about the Philippines and World War II. And I'm writing the third book, which is about the, in the series, which is called The uh, Unsurrendered. The second book is Blessed of the Merciful, and uh, the third book is about the, uh, a man and wife who are, he is a spy, and she's a Filipina, and they joined 260,000 in the par- Filipino-American partisan group who fought behind the lines in the Philippines, behind the Japanese lines. And they helped the United States in coming back, and and the Allies in coming back and winning back the Philippines. So I finally am through with the Philippines at that point. Well, your book, A Healing Place, has been given some interesting uh, recognition. Yes, it was uh, chosen right after it was, published, I mean a week after it was published, um, as one of the of five books chosen that, of exlibris that were published in 2010 that were chosen to go to the Frankfurt, Germany World Fair. And I was really honored at that. They uh, seemed very happy with the way the characters went and inspired by the book. And that's how I want people to And you believe we can learn a lot from history. Uh, We can learn valuable lessons. Yes, I think that's the best way for, for, or one of the ways for all of us to learn is to read history. And I hope that by writing historical fiction that I, I present it in a more readable fashion, a more interesting fashion where you can learn lessons and facts and and maybe you know people will not make the same kind of mistakes that they made then like man she inhumanity to man in world war ii for instance is a big one uh the mistakes that 
the Japanese made in Germany, the atrocities they committed against humanity. Uh, We need to read about that and learn more about it. Most people don't even know now, or the younger people don't even know about the horrible atrocities that Japan committed during World War II and before World War II. I even learn every day when I'm researching uh, more about it. And it's just, it's just horrifying. And, you know, it's just like, the atrocities that happen in the Middle East right now with Syria. Um, there seems to be a lesson here that that we need to learn. We all need to to learn that we are part of our fellow man. We're a unit. We need to, and we need to look to our family and our our I believe to our family and to to our faith in God and think what. What would he want us to do to make our world a better place? And because of the family, uh, your book is a tribute that through even having to go through horrible experiences, horrible odds, uh, one can overcome because of the love of the family and faith in God. That's right. You you know, like I said, when the Millers took the their only possessions in their car, they looked around and realized that none of them mattered except for their family. And they always taught uh, their family to, to look toward their faith in God to help guide them through adversities. And that was what Jed learned in, in camp, that he had a healing place in the power of prayer. The Millers found a healing place in Texas. They could finally live in dignity and and peace, and not having to fight to live every single day. And it it was uh, well, it was a wonderful place to grow up. <laughs> it was like a an idyllic little town, and it really was for a lot of people during the 30s and 40s and 50s. I'm not that old. <laughs> I grew up there during the 50s. But, uh, you know, you can find that any place you live. Well, the, the other, are you there? Yes. Okay. The uh, other uh, great message that is in your book, The Joy of Discovering a Meaning in One's Life. That's right. Uh, in must. You know, you have to sit down, and and as I become older, I realize that you have to realize what's important in your life. Is it the possessions you own? Like so many lost in the Depression and during World War II. Or is it your family sitting beside you? Or your faith in God, whether you go to church or not? All of us probably have some sense of a higher power in our lives and I just I just think that we all need to learn a lesson from that and that's what's important in life is our family and our faith in God or higher power we're listening to Joyce Shaughnessy she is the author of her book A Healing Place 
first of a series of three books. Joyce, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's on com. It's on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And I have a website, which is a healingplacebook.net. And uh, I'd like to say on Amazon, I have five stars out of five on the customer reviews uh, for both Blessed Are the uh, Merciful and a Healing Place. I'm hoping to get the same with my third book. <laughs> well, congratulations, Joyce. And, uh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for having me. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rock Star System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDoeswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Doeswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, From My Lips to God's Ears, second edition. And the author is M.A. Walker. And M.A. joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, M.A. Hello, Steve. And thank you for inviting me to share my book on your program. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to read just a short introduction for everyone, just kind of uh, give general information about your book, and then we'll get into the details. Uh, You say this, this book is based on a true story of a teenage girl who was raped by someone she had always thought of as a friend. After more than 30 years of suffering, She finally shared her secret, and with professional help, she learned to forgive her attacker and began the difficult process of healing. So this book, 
based on a true story. Tell us who that young girl was. Yes, I was that girl. My book is an autobiographical account of that day, which totally changed my life. It reveals all the trauma it brought to my life, and it also portrays the problems it caused the people who were closest to me. So what you're telling us is that this story, your book, covers a fairly lengthy period of your life. That's true. It spans more than three decades, and my rape occurred just a few weeks before my 14th birthday. I didn't seek professional help until about 35 years later. My book tells about my adolescent years and my adult life up until the time I finally sought professional counseling. It also takes the reader through my intensely emotional sessions with the psychiatrist. Can you give us some insight into that part of your story? Well, my life was a living hell. I had become convinced that I was crazy, and I finally realized that if I wanted my life to go on, I had to seek professional help. I was fortunate to have an extremely sympathetic and wise psychiatrist who recognized the key issues that needed to be addressed and got me on the road to self-healing and renewed hope. Probably the hardest part of my therapy was the long nights at home, alone, as I wrestled with all the demons that had been awakened. And how did that make you feel? To be honest, it was absolutely terrifying. Within the safe and controlled environment of the doctor's office, I was able to unleash all the anger and rage that had been building inside me for so long. The emotions that I discovered during those sessions terrified me. I became like an enraged, wild animal when my anger and fear were finally unleashed. It was a very messy process. Reading uh, that section of your book was very gripping. Uh, There were many psychological battles that you had to overcome. Was there one main lesson you feel was key to helping you learn to take control of your life? Well, uh, my psychiatrist helped me to accept what had happened when I was only 13 instead of suppressing those haunting memories. Even more important, I had to learn the act of forgiveness in order to reclaim my life and go forward. Explain to our audience how forgiveness, forgiveness was key to surviving such an atrocity. Well, forgiveness was a very difficult lesson for me to learn. It's not not the emotion we instinctively have when we are victimized. In my case, there were several layers of forgiveness that had to take place before I could even regain power over my own life and move on. Several layers of forgiveness. Now explain what those different levels of forgiveness were. Well, first I had to forgive my attacker. By doing so, I was taking away his power over me. And that was key to stop living my life as a victim. I also had to forgive myself for all the self-destructive things I had done over the years because I was so messed up. Finally, I had to learn to love and forgive my adolescent self. I had spent a lifetime loathing that helpless young girl who had been the victim of a brutal attack. Now, you mentioned living a self-destructive lifestyle as an adult. Why do you think you mistreated yourself? Well, for years, I loathed my adolescent self because it represented a weak, helpless person who was the victim of a vicious attack. My self-abusive behavior was directed toward that timid girl buried inside of me, a girl I loathed and wanted to destroy. 
As the story unfolds, the readers will come to understand the psychological implications that had on my life. It is really quite tragic. And you kept your rape a secret for more than 30 years before you finally sought help. Why do you think you waited so long to do that? Well, there is no one answer to that question. First of all, you must remember that my rape happened 37 years ago, and sexual crimes were not discussed as openly then as they are now. I really, I really didn't know who to turn to. If I reported my attack, that would mean I would have to relive it because it would be required to tell those horrid details to complete strangers. That prospect terrified me, so I chose to suppress the memory of that fateful morning and keep it a secret. My attacker had threatened me that if I told anyone what had happened, the next time it would be worse. I was prepared to do whatever was necessary to ensure there would never be a next time. I guess you could say I was paralyzed with fear. Your first three chapters of the book give us some insight into your family life, and it's obvious that you were close to your parents. Why didn't you tell them about your attack? Uh, Parents are often the first people a child will turn to when they're in trouble. Well, I was young and naive and somehow reasoned that in some way I must be responsible for what what had happened to me. I didn't want to bring shame and disgrace on my family, so I reasoned that that by remaining quiet, I was protecting them from humiliation and disgrace. Also, I was afraid my attacker might do something to hurt them. By being quiet, I felt I was keeping them safe. During those years, you were living in fear and even wishing to end your own tortured life. You witnessed a miracle healing on two different occasions. Uh, Those events were very interesting in reading about them. Most people never witnessed such a miracle in their entire lifetime, yet you saw two of them happen right before your eyes. That must have been just truly amazing. Well, it certainly was. I have been, I've seen healing shows on TV on occasion and was always very skeptical. You are never really convinced that it's the real thing. However, in these two incidents, I knew the person that was healed, and in both cases, medical doctors examined the patients and confirmed that they were indeed cured. Witnessing such an amazing event is something I will never forget. Do you think there is a reason why you got to witness these miracle healings? Yes, I do. It became very obvious from reading my, or it will become very obvious from reading my book that I was extremely troubled. I had taught myself to believe that I didn't deserve happiness. I was filled with feelings of worthlessness and self-loathing. In comparison to those uh, two other individuals, I was in much greater need of healing than, than they were. In my opinion, God was using those opportunities to remind me that he really does exist and he is able to restore broken people, people just like me. Talking about your rape must be extremely difficult for you. After all, uh, it deals with a very embarrassing and humiliating event in your life. Why are you now willing to make yourself vulnerable and reveal this event, which you kept a secret for so long? I want other rape victims to learn from my experience. I would like to warn them to not repeat the mistakes that I've made. 
I am willing to make my story public if it can help to restore someone else's brokenness. I have always seen myself as an advocate for victims of social injustice. By publishing my true story about one uh, one such injustice, I hope I can give others the encouragement they need. So what finally motivated you to write this book, From My Lips to God's Ears? My psychiatrist encouraged me to write about the tragic events in my life as a self-help healing tool. I never intended to release this story to the general public. It was to remain my private secret forever. The only people I ever shared my story with was my psychiatrist and my roommate. When my writing was nearing completion, my roommate suggested that I look into having my manuscript bound as a book for a keepsake. I decided to follow that suggestion. Sometime later, representatives from the publishing company persuaded me to go public with my story. They, like my psychiatrist, felt I could be an encouraging voice to other victims like myself. And where did you come up with the title, From My Lips to God's Ears? At at the time of my rape, I had a boyfriend, and he's referred to as Jeff in my book. Jeff was the love of my life, but because of the trauma of the attack, I withdrew from him. I regret not being able to make a commitment to him. Jeff died of cancer when he was only 30. After his funeral, in a flood of tears, I cried out to God the three words Jeff had waited so long to hear from my lips. I love you. I hoped those words would reach God's ears and that he would relay them to Jeff as well. Your epilogue, in some ways, is the most important part of your book. You have developed a strong belief in God and his will for your life. Have you always had a strong faith and trust in God? No. There was a period in my life after my attack when I was very angry with God. I couldn't see how he had his hand on my life and was actually protecting me from myself and my self-destructive choices. I now realize that it is only because of his intervention in my life that I am alive today. In my, in my book, the reader will meet many marvelous people who were instrumental in saving me. In a way, I suppose you can refer to them as God's angels to my life. You've gone from self-loathing and even a desire to end your life uh, to this life of purpose, and you seem to be very anxious to help others. How do you explain this change in your approach to life? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, that God comforts us so that we, in turn, may show that same comfort to others when they are going through a difficult time. I think... Uh, that is what my psychiatrist was trying to help me to understand. A survivor has the power to bring comfort and hope to other desperate people. That is what I hope my book, From My Lips to God's Ears, will do. Well, that's a wonderful note on which to bring this conversation to a close. I will encourage all the listeners who are victims of rape or who know someone who has been a victim to get a copy of your book. It's M.A. Walker's book, From My Lips to God's Ears. It may be the best gift ever to give to yourself or uh, and to give to others. Now, let's see. You're, you have a website, right? What is your website? It's www. and the title of the book, From My Lips to God's Ears.com.
And of course, you can go there and order the book. You can go to exlibris.com or you can go to amazon.com or amazon.ca in Canada. Right. And of course, any bookstore or online uh, book retailer can order the book. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and I appreciate it. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.